Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. Today we are talking about a fascinating combination of topics, democracy, identity, crypto and universal basic income. Joining me to help weave together these topics is serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the Democracy Earth Foundation, Herb Stevens. Democracy Earth is a non-profit building a blockchain-based open-source liquid democracy governance platform with the aim of bringing blockchain-based tools for democracy to the world at large. As a part of this mission, they've recently co-developed and launched an identity solution, proofofhumanity.id, which they hope will empower people around the world with a cryptographically secure form of identity that can be used worldwide. Holders of this Proof of Humanity identity will also receive universal basic income tokens. The idea being that everyone who is registered will be streamed UBI tokens at a rate of one token per working hour, which right now equates to about $440 a month, which is pretty crazy. It's thrilling to consider that people living in poorer parts of the world might be able to get access to quite a substantial sum of money just for merely existing. Democracy Earth has been one of my favorite organizations working in the crypto world for a while now. Their intentions are to use this suite of promising new technologies to help reinvent democratic systems and ensure that people, no matter where they live, can prosper. I'm thrilled to have had the chance to speak with Herb about all of the great work they've been up to over the years, but particularly about their ID solution and the UBI token. I reached out to him about a day or two after the UBI token was launched, with the hope of finding out more about it, and to get some questions I had about it answered, and Herb did not disappoint. So just for some background on Herb, for the past 25 years, he has been a serial entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, having built and sold multiple companies, mostly building systems where power purposefully shifts to the user through technology. When he learned of blockchain technology in 2012, considering it to be the best invention since the internet itself, Herb dedicated the rest of his career to social entrepreneurship, which led him to co-found the Democracy Earth Foundation, in which he is treasurer at the moment. He is also executive director of the Independent National Union, a new organization with the aim of strengthening political power independent from the two-party system, to enable the independent governing of American cities, states, and nation. In our conversation, we cover sovereign identity and proof of humanity ID, quadratic voting, currency, nation states, and the blockchain revolution we will see over the coming decades, how the universal basic income token works, what the philosophy behind it is, and what the plans for it are. And we spend a bit of time discussing what's currently wrong with politics in the US. Anyway, I was thrilled to finally get the chance to speak with Herb, the work Democracy Earth is doing is an inspiration to me, and I have no doubt the world is already better off for it. Alrighty, let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Herb Stevens. Uh, Herb, it is very nice uh, to be joined by you t- uh, today. I was just wondering, uh, yeah, so I've been following Democracy Earth for a few years now, and I'm very excited to see the recent developments with uh, the UBI uh, token and Proof of Humanity. But before we get into democracy, Earth, universal basic income, um, I would just—I'd love to hear about uh, your background uh, and how. Well, what's what's been your trajectory over the years, and how you actually came to uh, help co-found uh, Democracy Earth? Yeah, sure, absolutely, and and thanks for having me on uh, talk of today, Sam. I'm really happy to be here and represent Democracy Earth and the foundation. Um, you know, I'm a. I'm a software nerd. Uh, I'm 55, been uh, basically into software since junior high, so literally 40 years. 
um, sort of the front half of that career is more corporate working for GE and General Motors and some bigger corporations, but nonetheless in the technology side. In the last 25 years here in Silicon Valley, kind of as a co-founder or founder of a software uh, company, um, kind of gone through just about every cycle on the for-profit side as far as we took uh, one company public and we had another couple acquired. I've mainly been in three industries, financial services, healthcare, and now civic tech. Uh, and uh, But for the last six years now, going on seven, I've been uh, with the Democracy Earth Foundation uh, and focused on more of the nonprofit side of things and how we can use technology to uh, improve society. How did you make that transition from, uh, I guess, your more general uh, technology companies and, um, you know, for-profit companies to moving towards civic technology and, and trying to build what I guess you could conceive of as the, the like social infrastructure in a way? Yeah, very good question. Um, you know, I think it was a natural uh, migration. First of all, just like we've seen software go from proprietary to open source. And I would argue that if it's not open source, I'd, I'd, I'd you know, fear your future. Um, that's just the general direction of things on that front. Uh, also, just kind of the arc of my career, maybe one of the main takeaways I'd like to leave with your audience is, you know, uh, uh, it, I came to one conclusion after working uh, in my career that sort of cut horizontally across these industries. And, and, and that was that uh, ownership of the data or has to be in the hands of the user. Right. And data can be a number of things, including your vote, your money and, and a lot of assets. But in today's world, certainly uh, the way the architecture of the Internet is, it's really been upside down from the beginning. Uh, I was in banking networks before HTTP came along, before the Internet came along, and it was very secure. And when it came along, it was like, wow, that architecture is totally upside down. And it's not until blockchains came, have come along that that fundamental architecture of the Internet has changed such that you don't have to go through these redundant layers of uh, uh, authen uh, auth auth authorizing users and, 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 and having their data out fragmented across the internet. Now the keys to someone's power, money, data can be in their possession at all times. And that just doesn't exist today. It certainly hasn't existed since, since blockchain. So for me, the conclusion was in financial services, if you're really going to get better financial services, if you think about it today in your relationships out there in, in your financial services world, all your relationships are fragmented. The data is all over the place. How do any of those financial service companies give you good advice? They don't. If you're a, good, if you're a financial service company, the only way you can give someone good advice, if you really see a consolidated look of them, like a balance sheet and an income statement with all of their data in one place, and you can only do that if it's sort of in the hands and possessions of that user. So I would argue in financial services, you'd get better products, you'd get cheaper products, you'd get well, uh, uh, much better delivery mechanisms if the data were consolidated with the user. I worked in healthcare, the same conclusion in that industry right now in healthcare. Are you kidding me? You walk in, you start with a blank form, at least here in the United States. And so, you know, so the idea is like you get better health care, cheaper health care if the data is with the user. And, and the same conclusion is, is with your vote or voice. And those lines have really been blurred uh, lately with the digitization of money as well as Supreme Court decision, you know, Citizens United as far as voice equals money. 
And so what happens is, is, you know, the digital wallet becomes sort of the center of your ID as well as your keys, right, to all of mm. these assets. Yeah, so, I, I, so that sorry, got me to Democracy Earth Foundation uh, in about 2015 when they became one of the first nonprofits backed by, uh, by Sam Altman and uh, Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, we'll come to Democracy Earth um, shortly. I just... I, what you said made me think of something that I've never really uh, thought of before, and that's that by providing people with ownership of their own data, it's actually tremendously more beneficial to the organizations out there who <clears throat> might want to benefit from that data, who might want to take that data and run some analysis on it and then provide services based on it. And as the user um, or as, the, as a citizen, I can choose whether or not to provide that to them. And given that it's all consolidated in one place and that um, there can be an aggregation of potentially, you know, millions or hundreds of millions of people, and people can get access to that through paying each citizen, you know, a small fee or whatever. You actually get uh, far better um, analytical outcomes. Like I think of um, the like the Large Hadron Collider, like CERN. You know, they they have to do a ridiculous number of experiments uh, to, and they they look at the the numbers, and then they say, oh, look, uh, based on these this small fraction. Um, we can verify that the Higgs boson exists. And the same could be like applied to, you know, genetics, like trying to identify like at scale, uh, small, uh, well, yeah, at scale, the scale is necessary to identify those little things that are, that might be um, consistent across everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. And, and, you know, data analysis has come a long way. Uh, in the last few years with computing power, the continued increase of computing power. And, you know, more and more that data becomes more valuable, uh, especially when it's interlinked with uh, other data. Uh, And I mean, just imagine if you walk into a healthcare provider and you have every drug you've ever taken, every procedure you've ever had, every appointment, everything in your possession, right? And you can share what you want without revealing any of your private data. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a better world when everyone does have uh, keys to their data. Yeah, yeah. So how did you come to get involved with Democracy Earth? And what was the, like, how, how, was it, how did it come to be? How did you meet um, uh, Santi? Who is, so is it you and Santi who are the co-founders? Is that the... You know, there are uh, five co-founders. Uh, it's a very international organization. I'm, I'm the only American on the team. The others are from Argentina and France and uh, Brazil. Uh, and um, but I, I, I did meet them when they came here uh, right after uh, they were accepted to Y Combinator. I, I was close to them. And uh, uh, I decided to, to, to kind of work for free for a couple of years, just shadowing Santi and Pia. Uh, Pia gave an amazing uh, TED Talk uh, in Rio. And it's kind of what kind of put Democracy OS, mm-hmm. which was one of the first open source uh, software initiatives that Santiago and, and Pia started in Argentina. Uh, when they started a political party, Santi wrote, Santi wrote a book called Hacktivismo, kind of uh, how to hack governments with software, and sort of that got the attention of Y Combinator and and, and others. And you know, it's sort of I I had a really interesting conversation with Santi, and you know, he was talking about votes, 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 and I kind of said, let's sort of blur that line a little bit, and just think of votes as money, or votes as power, or votes as you know, not just you know, a token for a vote. And so, and blockchains were kind of early then as well. So, you know, we started talking about how Bitcoin and Ethereum would be used to, as public ledgers to secure these, the, the votes. 
Yeah. So I've been with them since. So what, what's the general, um, what, what does Democracy Earth exist for? What's its purpose? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, it, you know, Democracy Earth is a nonprofit uh, foundation here in California. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're, we're here to improve the democratic process. And we're uh, essentially software hacktivists. And, uh, you know, it, really the last customers that we thought we would have would be the United States of America, right? There's, you know, more than half the world lives under dictatorship and they're tr- fighting for democracy. And so most of what we would consider our customers were those those dissidents that needed software to, you know, um, secure software uh, that uh, they could rely on that uh, wasn't controlled by a government entity that was corrupted. And, you know, that word corruption is an interesting one because, uh, you know, before spreadsheets and databases, corruption was very hard to pinpoint around the world, right? It was paper-based and it was like relationship-based. And and the wonderful thing about the digitization of just about everything is corruption has been digitized. You can actually find it in a spreadsheet or a database, and whoever has the keys or controls that switches ownership, switches the amount of votes, switches something. And that's the wonderful thing about blockchains is we're moving from a world where databases have four basic functions to a world where they have just two basic functions, right? And if you know databases, it's the acronym CRUD, create, read, update, and delete, right? That's the four basic things you can do with the database file. Create one, read one, update one, or delete it. And as you move to blockchains, really the only difference is it's a database that you can't update or delete. You can only create or read, right? And that inherently provides audit trails, security, you know, and everything else. We can start talking about a lot of things there. But, you know, that's, uh, you know, you, 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 you move the corruption from ledgers that are controlled by one to ledgers that everyone's looking at and reading and that are incorruptible. And it's simple as that. You kind of remove the corruption by moving the control of the databases from one person having the keys or a party having the keys or a corrupt group having the keys out into the world where it can be governed in a more democratic way. Yeah. So what sort of, uh, like, let's, if we were to take that idea and then to realize it with actual tangible software, what does that right. look like? Well, it looks like, um, you know, you, you, you walk in to register to vote today and they give you a ballot, right? And you take that ballot and you basically mark it and you give it back to them, right? And that's sort of a clunky paper-based system there are some ways you can use paper for backup but if you think of all the ways that can be corrupted i mean i was in barcelona when the ballots were being like ripped away from the people and burned just a couple years ago so what it looks like is someone very similar to our proof of humanity id is using a digital wallet having the keys secure with them they create a public key and then they register that let's say with the local authority just like they're registering to vote and when they do that the registering authority sends them the appropriate tokens rather than a a, a voting ballot right Mm -hmm. and then they take those tokens and they send them to the appropriate address this address for yes this address for no this address for this person that address for the other person and it starts to be accumulated on a public blockchain very securely 
And it starts out with the same process you would today in person, maybe fingerprints, maybe iris scan, but whatever process that government demands, that's what you go through and you're issued your tokens. And so it physically looks like that and you're using your phone and it's very secure because the government is in control of issuing the tokens They're in, in control of the verification process. And then they can see it in real time and there's no cost of auditing and everyone's watching the vote. Yeah. Okay. I, I like, I'm just thinking about how much more efficient in a way that is compared to, you know, getting tens of thousands of people to organize a set of ballot boxes and to print these things. And then, uh, you know, have to count all of them and rather than get a result straight away, wait, you know, a few days, maybe a week or two weeks, and then you get the result. Whereas with this, it can be done pretty damn quickly and you can do it in lots of different ways. You know, it's just, I can, I'm imagining like a, a drag and drop, um, uh, like a vote, uh, like an election, you know, different parameters depending on the, on the situation since quite easy to deploy and it just happens automatically rather than having to send people out with paper. I mean, paper is a relic in my mind is just a relic of the past. I, my handwriting was terrible and it's so bad now because I, I only have to write my, the only time I ever write is when I need to sign a form. I don't ever write in any other way. Um, anyway. Yeah. You know, I, I love paper. I love books still, you know, most of my readings digitally these days, but, you know, I understand people's like, you know, desire to have paper because they're so familiar with it. But, you know, and, and, and in some combinations, you know, a lot of jurisdictions will choose to have both. But I would say the foundational one should be on a public ledger, just like Bitcoin is on, where everybody can look at it and uh, everyone can audit it in real time. And there's, you know, we, we want fair elections. We're not rooting for either side or a particular side. Right. We want the corruption out. And we want everyone to be confident that their vote was counted and that the election is secure and, and free of corruption. And, um, and that goes uh, around the world, right? Not mm. just uh, here in the United States. So around election time, there's always this discussion of um, whether or not e-voting is safe, whether or not it's secure, uh, can we trust it? And um, I've always thought that it probably can be, especially with blockchain technology. But every now and because like, I'm no expert, every time, every, every now and then, again, this uh, discussion comes up, I go and read a blog post by someone who, you know, takes it down. And because I'm no expert, I'm actually not too sure. Um, so what's, what, are, what are your thoughts? And what's the position of uh, Democracy Earth? Is this, can this be safe or at least safer, as safe as the existing uh, models which we have? So, first of all, I, I, I genuinely uh, 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 understand the concerns with electronic voting. I, I don't trust today's electronic voting, right? And, and there's a very specific reason why I don't, and that's because very little of it is open source software. So, right there is the very foundation in which you have to start. Is this software that we're voting on open source? And what does that mean? That means the code is out there in the public domain where every single line of code can be monitored and read. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing proprietary. There's no little, you know, extra counter over here that's tapping in at the right moment. No, no, no. It's open source code. So, and unfortunately, most of the stuff out there that people would call electronic voting 
is proprietary and it's it is not open source so right there i would agree with everybody what what, what people say is electronic voting is not now blockchain voting absolutely I mean, look at Bitcoin. Not once has been that blockchain been corrupted, right? And look at Ethereum. I mean, example after example, we're getting more and more secure, more and more comfortable with it. And it's just literally as simple as moving these ledgers out there in the public domain and out from private hands and, and, and corruptible situations. Yeah, yeah. So, that's that's, yeah, so that using blockchains, now we're secure, right? And yeah. we can talk about other types of backups and... Mm. And things. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how Democracy Earth uh, or its tools were used uh, in the US. From memory, it was in Colorado that a vote was conducted through um, some software developed by Democracy Earth. Was it some quadratic voting uh, thing? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, we're collaborating with uh, uh, Glenn Weil. Uh, and his team from Radical Exchange and uh, Democracy Earth Foundation there with the Colorado legislature. Uh, they're, they're kind of piloting, experimenting with uh, uh, quadratic voting. Uh, and so kind of where, where we're talking about the different forms of democracy that you mm. can, um, can operate under, quadratic is one of them. Obviously, one person, one vote is the fundamental one. Uh, plutocracy is kind of whoever has the most votes or money you know, gets to vote. And most companies operate that way. Whoever has the most shares wins or has most money wins. Uh, and then, uh, you know, there's liquid democracy where it's more fluid, your vote, you can give it to someone else. And it's, it's more uh, in, in the individual's control, different form of representation. Um, and then there's quadratic voting where you're allocated um, a certain number of tokens that are representative of either a budget or representative in relation to other uh, 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 members uh, that whereby when you vote for something, you vote for it once, it costs you one token. If you vote for it twice, it costs you four tokens. If you vote for it three times, it costs you nine tokens. So it's kind of like if you really want to put all your chips in one, you're not able to influence it with uh, a large amount of money because the quadratic cost of it increases so much that uh, you can't take over by your, with your power. Right. But yeah. it, it does is a good, uh, uh, if someone's willing to pay more and more and more for a, a, a vote, it shows how strong they are on that position. So it's a way of really signaling. Um, whereas a lot of legislation is just yes or no. Well, how do you vote? Yes or no. And you're not able to signal with, I'm put all my chips on this, forget about these other issues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm excited to get my hands on, at least to start using uh, some of the stuff in my own life, but ideally in my own country, in Australia, because we think of ourselves as fairly democratic and forward thinking and all that. But I think we've actually slipped in the democracy ratings over the, over the past few years. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people have, including the United States, uh, you know, and I like a lot of the things that you had Trump, are going so it's on. kind of understandable, you know, like at least you've got that excuse in a way. <laughs> That's true. That is true. That's true. Um, so I know we kind of touched on, um, we, we, we explored identity. Um, and I guess what you were describing is sovereign identity. Um, is there anything that you would add to what we, uh, what we spoke about briefly there? Like uh, that sovereign, like what, like if you were to, if, the, if, I, if I missed anything, what would, what is sovereign identity and why is it so critical 
uh, not just from a, a personal standpoint or, you know, the, um, yeah, why is it so critical in a, in a, in a digital uh, democracy, in a globalized world, in a world where we are so connected uh, and our lives are so, uh, influenced by data so much? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, um, you know, we're not the first here at Democracy Earth to be talking about sovereign identity. And, you know, for a long time now, you know, decades, really, people, it's kind of not this holy grail, but it's kind of like this pot at the end of the rainbow. I kind of, I kind of view it as is, you know, it's, it's kind of glorious and it's nice to think about, but, you know, a lot of the conclusions that I've come to and maybe Democracy Earth and the way we implemented kind of our first app out there uh, is there is no such thing as sovereign identity, right? Your ID only matters once you're connected to something else, right? And that's membership. And that's, you know, so your sovereignty goes away, right? When you agree to certain conditions or governance in in this two-party system, otherwise you're just floating and not connected to any economy or communications or anything else. So that notion of sovereign ID is, is not existent. So what you default to is, is certainly in a blockchain world with digital wallets is if you have a token, you're a member, right? So if you have Bitcoin, you're a member of the Bitcoin club. There's only 21 million of them and you're a member of that. Now, membership is just pay the market price. That's entry into membership. Getting a voting token, as it described earlier, might be, no, you got to come show up in person, give a thumbprint, iris scan, you know, et cetera, et cetera, personal information. Then you get this token and you're a member, right, of this community. So, you know, ID just becomes the process of getting that uh, uh, token or membership in that, in that DAO or, or distributed organization. And then the, the governance of that uh, membership that exists if you get kicked out or if you can continue, how you continue. So yep. that really becomes identity in, 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 mm. in sort of our world. So when we launched democracy.earth as kind of an app, essentially when you went, went there, it looked like, like a crypto-fed Twitter, right? And it's really like whatever's in your wallet, you can participate in that conversation. So if you have Ethereum, any conversation posted or with Ethereum, you're a member of that community. Any mm-hmm. other token out there, it's in your wallet, you're a member and can participate without Democracy Earth playing the middleman. Yep. Um, is that um, like the early adoption strategy uh, to try to facilitate governance within blockchain communities? Yes, we we kind of said, uh, here are the different types of democracy you can utilize. Your existing token, you can spin up a new one. You can use the Democracy Earth token, so you have all these different choices on which tokens. Uh, We were working with some technology providers on, uh, you know, their site, democracy.earth, and then we would allocate them them tokens, and they would distribute them so they would conduct their own democracy and essentially voting on how much money was distributed to uh, app developers. So they were voting on who had the best app, and then the money was literally distributed right to their wallets based on really about 100000 a month. So like using it in, 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 in methods like that, like real-time distri- distribution of money. Yeah, okay. I just stifled a sneeze. So it might, <laughs> it might come back. It might come back. So we'll see. <laughs> 
Um, so I know that um, like identity is critical to uh, to all of this, and when people ver- today, when I verify who I am, I need to provide personal information uh, and a password. But it might be my date of birth, an email, my address, a secret password, not a secret password, a, a hint. No, I need a hint for my answer to my secret question. So I've got, you know, these bank of secret questions. But um, this technology uh, enables us to verify identity without the transferal of any personal information. Um, so I can preserve my ident- I can preserve my privacy, but still verify that I am who I say that I am, and then I meet the certain requirements. Um, is that correct? Yes, exactly. Uh, and again, the magic happens through the digital wallet, through PKI or public key infrastructure, and you know, uh, elliptical curve cryptography go in one way. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's it. Is that you are the only one that have the keys to this now with the latest protocol that we just launched, uh, proof of humanity dot ID with with Claros. Uh, you know, that's a simple identification protocol that uh, sort of looks looks at just are you human, right? And just ask that simple question and and what's the basic couple of principles what's the most simple way in which we can use uh a a blockchain to sort of facilitate that and that's with ethereum that's showing your unique address that you as a human created presenting a picture and a video and then just uh whatever name you choose to give now it's super simple and uh then it's just used uh gamification and others to verify and root out bad actors, uh, duplicates or symbols. Uh, and you know, that's sort of got back to sort of, uh, you know, the basics of a number of things we, we wanted to do and in, in, including issue issuing universal basic income. But with that ID, then once you prove that and, and you have to be vouched for by a registered user, just with those simple checks, the network's uh, going to grow from there. And then you can start uh, accruing UBI. Yeah. So is proof of humanity, is the intention for it to be some form of uh, blockchain-based ID? So could I prove, is, is there an intention for me to use that? Like if I've established I am who I say I am, could I potentially use that to log into a particular service or to, to do a whole range of things? Is that one of the intentions? Yes, absolutely. We we built it as a baseline ID layer. Uh, again, issuing a, a baseline uh, universal basic income, and then the ability to sort of track your time or sell your non UBI time. But we'll we'll get to that later. Um, but yes, ab- absolutely. We already have uh, a couple of partners we're talking to that would do just that and and use that proof of humanity dot ID. And the Claris uh, judicial system, uh, you know, uh, as as the baseline ID, and you know, in, you know, a couple of things that uh, we realized early on is that we needed a couple of things for democracy. One is that you, ha- in order to have a legitimate vote or legitimate democracy, you have to have a legitimate organization, right? And so you have to kind of start there. And so there's a lot of talk about. DAOs or distributed autonomous organizations, and those are built on blockchains, and that's where you get your legitimate organization. 
right? And now you can build voting on, t- on top of that or currencies. Um, and so, so there needs to uh, be this structure within which voting and tra- well, within which transactions take place. It can't just be yeah. out in the and, open. And, it needs and, to and have literally form. early on, it was on our roadmap. We need to bring distributed organizations. And we started to talk to Aragon and a few others really early on and help them out with their white paper so we could cross it off our product roadmap and someone else could do distributed autonomous organizations so we could fo- really focus on the functionality within democracy and, and that process, right? And governance um of that distributed organization so they really built great infrastructure over there uh others have as well since then but i think aragon's one of the the leaders out there in that area and then you needed a judicial uh, uh system so if you think away the, the the way these companies here in the united states organize most of them are delaware c corporations and then you end up in delaware court if there's a problem or question or something that get, needs to get resolved and so when you start an organization, you have to have that same thing, blockchain-based online and gamified in the right way to replicate what otherwise the state of Delaware would do, right? Provide that judicial layer when someone, member of the organization says, hey, wait a minute, I have a dispute. And then, you know, other people have to get involved. Yeah, yeah. Kind of sounds a bit ridiculous when you, you know, <laughs> oh, you need to potentially fly to Delaware to get something sorted out. I mean, there are people who start companies. I, got, I, I think, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You can start a, I don't remember what the acronym is, but you can start a Delaware-based company, right? For I think it's done, it's for tax reasons. Is that right? You know, there's a lot of different reasons. Not really tax. It's, it's mostly okay. legal. Uh, they have the, the, the most favorable corporate law in Delaware and uh, most of the lawyers uh, in the country that operate to corporate law are registered in Delaware or their home state or and their home state. Certainly, if you're going after venture funding here in Silicon Valley, you must be a Delaware C corporation, period, end of story. They, you won't get funded unless you're a Delaware C corporation. Yeah, okay. Now, so- now there are other havens now. Uh, most blockchain companies... Certainly in the last number of years, they've left the United States. But if they're already left, they're, they're, they're in Wyoming. <laughs> and that's, that's the state that really is understanding what they're doing and, and, and has, has reasonable blockchain re- uh, regulations. Yeah, okay. I'm surprised to hear, you know, that phrase, blockchain regulations, because I feel like they don't really exist in, in, in many ways or in many places. It doesn't seem like it at all. Um, perhaps some countries are... I, in Australia, where I'm based, they're moving slowly in that front. Like they've, you know, basically there's the capital gains thing. You know, if you if you cash out, um, then you got to pay your tax. But aside from that, I don't really know what the what the details are. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, we we at Democracy Earth Foundation, we we see that's where the friction exists. Is 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 nation state. Right. Uh, the world's operating on one Internet. Commerce is global and, you know, countries and the regulations are trying to, you know, control something they can't control, tax something that they can't really tax very well. And they're kind of feeling pretty panicky. So you have reactions like China and India just ban it outright. And, you know, as soon as they do that, everyone demands it more. Right. Uh, in the United States, they've tried to tax it in different ways or shut. They talk about shutting things down and the community laughs. and. Every time you go to Washington, you know, you, you, you don't walk away thinking that they really get, you know, what's needed. And so you have to go back to the state level. And that's typically how it works in the states is enough states get it and 
build a majority and then the feds come along and say okay seems like a majority of the states are doing this so we got to come along too you know um and that seems to be happening with blockchains mm. i see uh, this is something perhaps we can get to later on in the conversation after we talk about ubi but i i do see i can understand the hesitancy with adopting these things because i feel like distributed ledger technology marks the end of the nation state well so does the internet but i think that we will see the dissolution of the nation state as it currently exists today and the actions that these countries take to try to quell it uh will effectively be the death throes um because like short of destroying the internet and making making it so that no one can access it i don't really know how you shut these things down um and people are going to do what people want to do well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. You know, people are, and uh, th- they shouldn't resist, but they will, and they are. Um, but I, I, I kind of take, I think, a slightly different approach to that. And, and I, I, I don't, I, I think they're going to exist in harmony. I, and I think, first of all, that almost every single nation state, first of all, yes, they're absolutely going to digitize their currency on blockchains. No doubt about it. So. And, and that's that's just inevitable, partly because China is now about to do so, and that's going to force the rest of the world to. Uh, the U.S. should have been ahead of that. Other countries are ahead of that. But eventually, yes, every country has their currency uh, uh, on a blockchain, which is simple. They're just moving it from, again, a ledger that has the keys one place to a ledger that has the keys somewhere else. Nothing's really changing, right? Um but now it's digital and now it can move uh, very, very quickly. Um, and we'll see how it performs out in the open market. I'm not very bullish on the U.S. dollar if you look at it relative to Bitcoin and, and, and others and, and the policy and, and how much money they've printed in the last, you know, There's like another of years. Six, three billion, uh, three trillion coming. I think there's a, another announcement about a stimulus. Um, so. Uh, you know, I studied finance in college and, uh, you know, it scares me when I hear how much money has been printed and, you know, there doesn't seem to be any consequences. But thinking about that, it's, it's because partly because it shows that the world does need a global currency, because when we print so many here in the U.S., the world seems to absorb them because that's the global currency. So it's sort mm-hmm. of relative to global, not just what's going on here in the U.S., but it forces every other country to keep up relative to inflation to print the same relative amount relative to their currency. And if you're not keeping up, you just get left behind, right? And most countries aren't that sophisticated and they can't keep up and they do get left behind. And so what, what you end up with is, you know, currency as, as discrimination, currency as mm. bullies, currency as why would one nation, why should one nation's currency be the world's currency? And so what I see is, all of them continuing to exist because if you really look at U.S. dollars, they're not created for people. They're created through a commercial process. Dollars in the United States are created through the federal loan system where a commercial bank will loan money to a commercial client and that commercial bank borrows money from the Fed and literally that money is created on the balance sheet of the Fed and that's how money is injected into society and created and that is sort of a trickle-down effect. Right now, that's needed, and the throttles that they put on that are relative to the measurements of markets, New York Stock Exchange and others. Like, okay, we need to, it's getting hot, let's throttle it down. And I would argue that's always going to be needed and necessary. What we don't have, what's necessary, is the missing layer of currency, right? 
a global currency, one that scales with humanity, with the people, and it's not trickled down through business and that activity, which generally does scale with populations, more people, more commerce, but not necessarily. Mm. Plus, I would kind of, kind of quote and credit Ray Kurzweil with, with this idea that by 2050, roughly 30 years from now, none of us will have to work. It's one of the arguments for universal basic income. I look at it kind of in a number of different ways, but essentially, if you think about that, if none of us have to work in 30 years, not too long from now, hopefully I'll be alive, still alive then. None of us will have to work. That means that if that's true, if Ray Kurzweil, one of the best futurists on the planet, uh, is correct, we have to be distributing enough out to people if they're not working to at least pay for the basics, right? And, you know, they can work and do stuff on top of that. If you say you don't have to work, well, at least we have, we have to signal with something. So this is sort of part of the impetus of the need for liquidity. And while machines and computers continue to eat up jobs at first at the low level and higher, higher to the point where no one has to work, we have to somehow be giving tokens or something to people to be signaling. You know, today it's currency, right? And mm. that's our signal of choice, right? We signal with our dollars. I want that. That creates the demand, right? And with the money being created at the top, at the supply side, you're not getting proper signaling. So it's also a way in which to inject money into a system in which you get now proper signaling. So when you say injecting from the bottom, um, yeah. I'm curious, if this might be a good, are we talking about... Um, are we talking about the universal basic income coin? It, like, does this connect it directly with um, this conversation, or is it somewhat separate? Because if it's if it's connected, I think we can weave them together. Um, yes, absolutely. That's the way we distribute universal basic income okay. directly okay. to so people I'll, when they prove their humanity. Okay, cool. Well, so we'll get into this, the the coin specific soon. But when, <laughs> when you say it gets injected from the bottom up, is there like a uh, is, is, is there some rules, some protocol, some, some smart contract that gets executed depending on the number of people that are participants in the network, the level of activity, um, what they're spending their money on? Like, how is this bottom-up uh, injection of, let's just say, cash or tokens generated? And what would be the, the variables that are uh, taken into account to account for this, um, this change, this, this flux? Yeah. So. With universal basic income, uh, there are a couple of just a couple of founding principles you have to keep in mind. One is universal, and the other is basic. You know, two 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 words in there. But to to dive deeper, and you know, uh, I would credit Professor Gee Standing. Professor Gee Standing is the head of BN, which is the global organization that's been working on behalf of getting universal basic income out to the world for thirty, forty. 50 years. He's written a number of books, done a lot of projects in India and other locations. And I've read all of his books. And, uh, you know, the, the, the main takeaways that he, you know, just to sum up his work is one, universal means it goes out to everybody. There's no means testing. There's no, it, it goes to the poor, but not the rich. It goes to this class. It's not reparations. It's just universal. Every single person, every human on earth, regardless of what country you live on, where you are, what economic class you are, 
you get universal basic income just like everybody else. Now, if you're rich and you're not, don't need it, yeah, you'll end up giving it away or putting it into something else. But the, the basic principle there is that it's universal. So it, what that means is, is like there's no mean testing. And it goes out to everybody. And it's not in U.S. dollars. It's not in particular country. It goes out to everyone. So that was one of the founding principles of the Democracy Earth Foundation and, and as we got more into re- releasing the token. And then on the other side of it, uh, when, when it, you know, relative to basic, it had to be enough relative to working time to represent what basic is. So you kind of had to look at real world numbers at basic, you know, uh, minimum wages and costs of things. And, and, and we started to talk more about time of the day and how blockchains are good clocks. And, and so we ended up creating the sort of the, the basis of the token itself in time, which we can talk about how that, you know, creates a stable coin or stable pricing. And, sort of disconnects it from fiat currencies and, and other tokens that otherwise would, in our opinion, corrupt the nature of stability. So I would argue that anything they call out there as a stable coin that's connected to the U.S. dollar, uh, I don't know how they're putting stable. What happens <laughs> yeah, when right? the U.S. dollar starts doing this? What happens with the U.S. dollar? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's stable relative to that decline. Yeah, it's, it's stably going down right with it, right? So... Uh, just so tilt we it had this way, yeah, just tilt it. It's totally stable. <laughs> You're sliding really fast, but very stably. Um, so yeah, we had a lot of interesting conversations with very smart people about how how we could do that and utilize blockchains. Uh, and you know, again, what we got back to was uh, the notion that uh, that universal basic income had to be enough to cover the basics, and that meant it had to sort of represent a certain portion of working time eventually getting to eight hours a day 30 years from now so you had to have a governance system by which you could ratchet up that universal basic income every year uh relative to what's going on uh dynamically yeah. out there but that's it's quite interesting because i've never i haven't done a, a huge amount of research into basic income but i haven't really heard this mention of time like the, the way i've always interpreted basic is uh that which is sufficient to participate in society at a an acceptable level, right? Uh, because, you know, we could say that what do human needs for basic survival? It could be adequate nutrition, water, shelter. That's the very, you know, that might be like the 18th century take, right? But today we need, uh, well, we need clothes. We need um, electricity. We also need, I would argue, internet access and personal device ownership. Um, that's a paper I wrote a few years back at, at uni. Just look, to be a 21st century citizen, you need to own your own device your own portal to the digital world everyone um, should absolutely agree yeah 100 so i i saw that as pegged to some monetary value right um and i guess the time thing kind of it is but it's how much time do you need to work sufficient to generate that value to survive or to not, not to survive but to uh, satisfy the requirements that the basic requirements and that could be you know a whole host of things that i don't know how you'd economists worry about how you calculate that basket of goods. That's not me. Um, but is, is that the general idea? Is that the, the mapping? Uh, yes. And I would add some more. I would add that uh, if you think about society kind of as a man-made system, right? This money is made up. The titles are made up. The economics are made up. The, it, everything's made up. 
And in computing, you know, you know that you can't account for everything when you build a system. And eventually you kind of have to unplug it and reset it, right? And it, it plays itself out and, you know, it, it goes for a while and then things start to go and you're like, okay, reset, right? And you get back to And I would argue that if you think about kind of capitalism and the global infrastructure that's been built now over a number of generations, and you think about the commons and you think about how that wealth is handed down privately often and in private ways and through private islands and other ways. And you think about how maybe those dividends of our ancestors might not be being distributed properly. Right. And so, so that's one element where when you're born and you come into society in order to function, just like any game like Monopoly, you have to be given sort of a lump sum, like, here you go, you know, we've built this whole system here in order to participate. Here's a bunch of money and you're going to get a little bit every year. Now you can just use that or you can build something, you know, go at it. And again, if you're going to restart a Monopoly game, you do just that. You say, okay, everybody put the money back in or, or start with a new currency. Let's reset all the titles which means the debt and everything's relieved not just student debt but all debt because that's all connected so essentially you're resetting money work which are the hotels in monopoly and homes which are the green buildings right and these are the major assets in life that when you have a system like this if we look at how things have accrued just like a monopoly it's all accrued to one player and everyone else is bankrupt it's accrued to the one percent and everyone else it's played out just like that and I would argue that what we need to do is, is not argue about it, not change the rules, just reset the game. Congratulate the winners. Say, okay, congratulations, billionaires, you won this round. And then welcome new players to the table. Because I tell you what, if I were a player and I stepped up and saw how the game was rigged, I wouldn't participate. I'd be playing a side game over here, right? Yeah, so, so I like kinda... the, the image, you join the game after 30 rounds and there's hotels on... On every, on board on every, <laughs> and and the people who own those hotels, they have access to the bank. They are the of bank course as they well. Do. They, they they are the bank. Right. Oh, you want yeah. to borrow some money to play one round until you get killed? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and and that's what society's face right now. So I kind of look at it in a neutral way. I kind of look at it from both sides. I think everyone's played the game. Some of it's luck and some of it's strategy. We lap around, and I think that now it's time for a reset. And so I think that's kind of like one of my worldviews. Yeah, yeah, that aligns uh, very well with mine. Um, so I've been learning a lot about, uh, I've studied philosophy and I've learned a lot about complex systems and I guess just the nature of the way the world works, right? And a fundamental feature of the world is uh, the Pareto distribution. Uh, we see it uh, in, in all sorts of places. So like the fact that 20% of um the 80% of outcomes can be sort of derived from 80% of the inputs, right? So like a, a minority uh, of actions can result in majority of, of the outcomes. And this is true, not just in economies uh, with, you know, distributions of wealth, but also in the number of uh, like the artists on Spotify who are the most uh, popular, those that are the most listened to. It's like, you know, 1% account for like 95% of the players or something like that. And this is not indicative of, you know, like, the, the general idea is inequality is built into the fabric of nature itself, right? Like the fact that people are choosing to stream this stuff, um, like this, this is an expression of personal interest 
um, and these inequalities arise is indicative of that fact. But it's also the way rivers form. It's also uh, the the size of of animals um, and their populations in relation to one another. I did a pod- this general theme can be wrapped up into this thing called the the constructor law of thermodynamics, which is sort of like a, a basic physics principle that kind of helps explain how these inequalities come to be. But just because inequality is a fact of nature doesn't mean that we need to accept it and say, well, that's the way the world works. We got to deal with it because people who make lots of money, you know, they are born lucky. They, they're born into the, um, well, not all, they're not always born lucky, but luck plays a tremendous role in the um, generation of, of wealth. There was a, an article from MIT a few years ago that says, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Or something to that effect. And it just explains like the role of luck, the role that luck plays. So when you see all these things coming together and you see that some people have tremendous amounts of wealth, when it's like, oh, well, you know, like that wealth was made possible because of the, um, like your ancestors, like you are a part of a chain that extends back tens of thousands of years. The words and the tools that you use were not forged by your own. Your ideas, like, I don't know how much credit we can take for our own ideas. And, you know, society is that, right? So when you wrap all that up, it's like, look, thank you for creating the value. You know, there's, you've got a billion, but you've got a hundred billion dollars. Like we appreciate your help. Maybe you can keep 50% of it because we can't justify you keeping all of that. So we'll take the rest of it and then distribute it back. And, you know, the, the fruits of that labor, they nourish the ground upon which new, new value gets generated. Yeah. And, and you know what? I, I, I would argue for solutions that don't focus around taking anything back or taxing. I think that's impossible. And I think it's, I want to say wrong. I would create new layers of currency in which you operate with and new organizations in which you operate with. Right. So I would literally set a date in the future when we sort of reset stock ownership. So w- when I look at blockchains, I see cap tables, right? It's the exact same thing where columns are time and rows are uh, transactions or individuals or shareholders. And so, you know, what we're going to have is a huge movement away from ownership being out in these private channels through venture capitalists onto private markets, onto like New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, inaccessible to the global market and transitioning to ownership of your work, of your enterprise, right in your wallet, where when profits are distributed, your work is sold, rights are sold, it's coming directly to you, right to your wallet, not through some lawyer, not through an organization, not through some place where you have to, you know, fight to get your share of your own work. So I see it. This is one of the biggest sort of transitions I see happening in the next number of years is moving from the ownership of people's work right to their wallets and from private exchanges out into distributed public exchanges. So I'm I'm not sure if I understand completely, um, particularly when you say reset. So could we like work through, you know, an example um, just so I can get a better, a better understanding. Yeah. Yeah. For example, you know, uh, there's a lot of trends towards co-ops. There's a lot of trends towards ownership. uh, individual. Again, when I think of, you know, the rights of people being trampled, I think, you know, one of the questions I ask just about everyone I encounter is, do you own a fair amount of your work? Now, I I purposefully phrased it that way. So they would, uh, first of all, define what a fair share is. Second of all, what 
they consider work, right? And you'd be surprised, almost everybody, the answer is no. I, I don't own a fair amount of my work, right? And, uh, you know, if you think about the world and, you know, ex essentially you're exchanging your time for money or you're in, or in, and working within an organization, uh, not enough of the rewards of those organizations are going to the employees, right? To the people that are actually doing the work. And instead, the monopoly game has gotten to the point where, again, the ownership in work and, and the hotels and the houses too much of it are with was are with the institutions and not enough with the people so when i say reset more and more it's happening at the lower level it could happen more at a global level if 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 if, if, if there were a big enough movement but if i were king i would set a date like january 1st 2025 and says as of that date every organization has to be at least owned 50 percent by the employees now what's interesting about that is that's what a stock split is. So technically it could happen across every exchange on the world with the push of a button, stock split and half the shares go directly to people's wallets, right? There's no technical barrier. It would just have to be a shareholder vote, employee vote. So it could happen like realistically, you know, tomorrow. Again, it would take a movement, things like that. But, you know, that's the sort of thing that is happening and, and will continue to happen. And, you know, less and less will, you know, corporations be able to uh, uh, keep the power amongst a few and hide sort of the transactions that occur. Because again, and I spent a few years as an auditor with GE Capital, and you know that all the dead bodies are buried between the end of the month and the close of the books, right? Um, and that lag is where everything goes into miscellaneous is categorized in, in you know, the accounts that make you look better. And things like that. And with blockchains, you're going to have more and more instantaneous accounting and therefore instantaneous accountability and tracing right to individuals, right? right. I would say that there's a lot of, uh, you know, a uh, 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 corporate sort of um, um, washing <laughs> going out there where corporations do things, they pollute a river, but no one goes to jail, right? And more and more, this is going to be instantaneous accounting, which means if you have accounting, you have accountability. So, uh, yeah. you know, I, I see a world moving that way. Okay. So let's, let's jump back to basic income, kind of explore what, um, what the general plan is for, you know, proof of humanity, democracy, earth, the UBI token. What is it? How does it work? How does the... Um, yeah, what is it? How does it work? And we can come to the how we maintain, you know, the price across time and all that. How do we keep it stable? But um, what's the general idea? Yeah, the the general idea is uh, uh, you go to proof of humanity, proof of humanity .id, and there you're going to be logging in with an Ethereum uh, wallet, typically MetaMask, and in doing so, you're going to be registering an Ethereum wallet public ID number address and you're going to be submitting a picture and a video that has you showing that Ethereum address in a video and you stating I'm human and I haven't submitted to this registry before and this is my Ethereum address. So that simple short video combined with the picture combined with the registration process of that uh, uh, through the digital wallet um, on the blockchain uh, then starts a, a, a process where uh, someone needs to vouch for you. 
So you've registered and now you need a registered uh, uh, member to vouch for you. And they sort of do so through their digital wallet. So now that's vouch you're vouched for. And then a three and a half day period starts where anyone can challenge that vouch. If they don't, now you're registered and you start getting UBI literally directly to your uh, Ethereum or uh, digital uh, wallet. And how is the amount of UBI that's delivered to the person determined? And I'm sure it doesn't matter who you are, how much UBI you might have bought, you get the same amount? Yes, exactly. So the key there is having a consistent uh, drip rate. And the drip rate is actually per second. And, and when you have that consistency, that equates to universal. Everyone gets the same. There's no, you know, but through the governance process, it can be throttled up or throttled down. And over a period of time, once we see the market dynamics out there and how it literally, one of the goals is, is really to put a value on time out there. The notion that you receive this at a certain rate, and you can also earn it at a market rate. We want, rather than a one-to-one relationship determining how much someone's worth, we would like that value determined out there on public markets such that I'm not going to get rid of my UBI tokens that I'm accruing for anything less than I would sell my time for, right? And, you know, and if you're a salaried employee, that's going to that's going to pull the number higher. And if you're an hourly employee somewhere, it might pull it down. But if you think globally between all the people in the world receiving it, you're going to have millionaires that, oh, I'm not going to sell my UBI for less than something. So it creates a natural market for for the time that you get. And the, 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 again, the two limiting factors, every token. And so it just doesn't run away inflation has to have a couple of limiting factors. And this is population or proof of humanity. And then time, there's only so many hours in a day. So we've throttled it such that you can't have more than there's time in a day. And it represents a percentage of working hours. In, in this case, we started literally with 23% of eight hours or almost a quarter of a working day is sort of the, the rate that it's dripped uh, to you. Now it'll it'll equalize over time, and uh, we'll we'll see where that plays out. But yes, okay. So these coins, like the nature of digital anything, is that it's like technically you know nearly infinitely divisible, right? So yes. it could be one UBI token, but I could have point oh 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 one coming to me every second. Um, so what's the the and you're saying the the market value of UBI, the, the value of UBI will be determined by the market, but what's the, the drip rate? So I, what, I, what I don't understand is you said 23% of, the, of an eight-hour day or something like that. What does that equal in terms of um, the UBI token? Yeah, so, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, we, we started the drip rate at a rate that is – Again, universal and very easy to understand. And, and that's essentially, you know, one UBI uh, per hour, okay? Which is a fraction at a drip rate of per second. It's the, I don't know the fraction off the top of my head, but it equates to a, a getting one per hour. Now, you know, obviously, 
blockchains continuously go, but working hours are spread. The eight hours are spread out across 24 hours. So you have to have a rate that sort of equates to as if it were a percentage of eight hours, right? And if you think about eight hours being the working time, eight hours, five days a week, that's 2,000 roughly hours a year, right? And, you know, so you have about 8,700 hours in a year. So that's a percentage of the total hours. And so blockchains are constantly going. So you have, you have to relate it to working hours, which are in relation to total hours. And then you get sort of your drip rate. And we started out to make it super simple and not just some fraction. You get one per hour. Yeah. Right. And then okay. the market will then determine relative to the value of time what that is. Okay. But the goal okay. is to do a percentage of working time and then bump that up over time. And then through a DAO or governance, you know, adjust that over time as the market dynamics change, right? Okay. And whenever you issue a token, one of the things you realize is that early on, you have a lot of speculation. You have people thinking, oh, this is going to go to the moon. Let's pump it up. And then you have people selling. And all this craziness goes on and you kind of like it's beyond your hands in the distributed it world. Didn't it get so to $150 per token? Yeah, it, it did. That's and what I bought. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I'm like, oh, Santi's released this thing. Um, I'll support it. You know, here's some, here's some Ethereum. I didn't, I didn't, it was the first time I'd used Uniswap. So, I, and I didn't oh, know yeah. how to check the price or whatever. I'm like, oh, well, here we go. It seems pretty early. I didn't realize that I, I bought it at Mount Everest. But that's okay. I, I believe in the. I believe yeah, in the. Yeah, you know, the, a lot of people think it's Mount Everest until time goes by and they realize how early they were, and you know, so we'll 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 yeah. see where it where it shakes out. But are are you know that you have a, a a real choice when you're when you're issuing a token, and that's you know the Bitcoin model, which is fixed quantity and 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 increasing price, right? And so that increases the value as you multiply the two. Or you can go kind of stable pricing or fixed pricing and sort of increasing quantity that or goes up and down relative population. So obviously the UBI token is the latter, which we issued at a relatively low price and we expect it to trade up and stabilize where people value time. Yeah. So how can I sell my UBI? You know, like if I'm getting a UBI an hour, um, how do I turn that into pizza at my door? Yeah, so the the wonderful thing is, and again, you know, uh, the 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 transaction costs, you know, unfortunately, very wildly early right now. The transaction costs are lower on Ethereum, but uh, uh, just days ago or weeks ago, they're much higher, and you know, that's a factor of demand and a number of things. But the good news is, is that more and more decentralized exchanges are taking care of that in the background. Right. So when you go to buy your product or you buy your pizza or you buy whatever you want, it sort of takes what's in your wallet, looks across multiple oracles and exchanges, picks the right one, converts it into the currency that whoever that vendor is selling in and happens behind the scenes. So it's going to pick your best currency at the best rate, at the best exchange all around the world. Right. And you're just saying buy pizza and you don't even know what's going on in the background. Yeah. So. That's the world we're getting to. But yeah, right now, yeah, that vendor has to take what we have. Or you might have to swap from UBI to Ethereum or some more common used token at this point. Certainly the goal is to 
is to also help determine the price and enable people to sell their time and keep track of their time, which isn't done today on any blockchain, which means that for the non-UBI time, the rest of the day, if someone takes or buys a UBI out in the open market and sends it to you, that's the equivalent of buying your time, right? And now mm-hmm. you can see that on, on, on the blockchain. Or they send you the equivalent and it's sort of minted in your wallet, which means it's staked with real currency or value, valued on an open market, and that mints a, a, an hour or a, or, a, or, a, or a UBI token. They kind mm-hmm. of go hand in hand. Uh, and sort of now you have, uh, you know, a lot of people don't have that sort of audit trail and both sides want it that, hey, I purchased an hour of your time and you owe me an hour of your time and I paid you a fair price. And now you have sort of an online contract just through a, through a simple transaction. Yeah. Right. And I can decide to value my time at however I wish, to, or depending on how I'm feeling, is because I could say, <clears throat> like, if someone was, I guess I choose to engage in that transaction if I want to. Well, this is an interesting concept that uh, I'd love your listeners and, and your feedback to to, to uh, on this and to really understand. Uh, you know, one of the fundamental principles that we operate to is that everyone's time is created equal, right? And I know that a lot of the world doesn't operate that way, right? Uh, I'm a lawyer and I went to this school and, you know, I bill at this hour and my time is worth this much. And, you know, you're a janitor and your time's not worth much at all. Well, I, I think we all need to step back and realize and start from a place where actually, no, uh, everyone's time is, is created equal. What is not created equal is what you can do with that time, right? Yes, as a lawyer, maybe you have an education and contacts and you can get this project done or contract done within half an hour and wow, I'll pay you $10,000 to do that, right? So your time is not, it, it's not a matter of, of connecting your value to time. And, and, and again, this is where I and a lot of us see fundamentals of discrimination around the world. The ability for me to pay a man here in the United States $750 an hour and a, let's say a woman in India $2 an hour, right? And valuing literally their time that differently. And that's a fundamental thing here that we're trying to say, no, it doesn't mean that we're going to all earn the same amount. Not at all. We just have to have a, a different conversation and, and base it on, uh, yeah, that lawyer can still earn millions of dollars a year, but it's not because they're their time is is that valuable. It's because they're delivering the things that are of that value, right? And that goes for anyone on the planet. Uh, it, that's it the creates, separation. Yeah, exactly. The time is the same, but it's what gets delivered in that time frame that has value. It's not the time itself. Precisely, gotcha. right? Gotcha. Precisely. So someone could sell $10 million worth of something and earn 10% of that, get a million dollars in 20 minutes because they have contacts and they can sell and whatever, right? So it doesn't limit anything. It just says, wait a minute here. Much of the world operates on, I'm trading my time for a currency, right? And our co-founders are from Argentina. They've been through enough collapses of, of, of currency and cycles that they understand, like, you know, that's 
fundamentally wrong when you're trading your time and then tomorrow it could be worth half as much, right? So we have to be thinking of the currency, literally, that we're trading our time for in time itself. So there's no inflation and deflation. So if I'm trading my hour for an hour today, tomorrow it's worth an hour, next year it's worth an hour, and the year after that it's worth an hour. It never inflates or deflates. You with me? Yeah, yeah. But it would relative to other currencies that you would exchange it for, of course. Sure, of course, right? But that's relative to other currencies. But on an open market, time is one hour is one hour, right? Mm -hmm. And sure, it may be worth more or less somewhere else, but on a global open market, it would kind of become, ideally, hopefully, the de facto global minimum wage. Yeah. Right. Okay. No one's going to trade their time for less than that, but... You can certainly earn more than that. And any employer can like buy more time. But the key is that only time can created by humans spending time on earth. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. the measurement. That's the protocol. And only humans can generate it. And sure, now it's liquid. I could sell that free UBI or I can trade my time on an open market for whatever the world is valuing time. Yeah. So now, what's interesting was... is, is now what's connected, how that's connected is that if you think of Bitcoin as a, a, a store of value at a certain level, right, which uh, we, we, you know, UBI is and, and the our token is, um, but at the lower level, the functionality is signaling, the, the functionality is democracy, the, the functionality is Satoshi level, I'm sending a little bit here and and there's voting protocols connected with the with the currency. So okay. literally, I'm giving you my two cents. I'm sending <laughs> it from here to there because I vote that way. And I can signal without it leaving my wallet, if you will. Right. Yeah, and I, okay. we can have always-on democracy rather than getting a token like once every four years or year or two. I can have a presidential token and I can place it here. And when I want to move it, I can move it. And it's in my control. So we can see it's like real-time polling in a way. Real-time polling. Real-time, honest, direct polling. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So I'm I'm still trying to just wrap my head around it a little bit. More so just from the, like, let's say I live in, you know, uh, Nigeria. Um, They've got, you know, big crypto adoption happening right now. This sounds like a, a, this sounds great, you know, like they might be able to get a little bit of extra cash just for existing um, if they're getting one UBI an hour um, and they want to translate that into uh, we might have covered this so apologies if we have but if they want to turn that into things that they can do in the world the market would determine the rate so one hour so that one UBI might be worth five US dollars um, or right. it might be worth whatever and th- so the market determines that rate um, market as markets do and they convert that and maybe at $5 after transaction fees, they get four US dollars for that, for that one hour, right? That's, the, that's the, the general idea. So why would the market, like if I'm an investor, um, why would I want to buy into the UBI? Like, is it because I, I like, what, what's the, yeah, why, how does the market rate kind of get determined here? I, I, I'm not too... I don't know too much about finance and I'm just trying to see 
how that market rate could be determined and why would people buy into it um, other than believing in the, like I gave the money because I was like, whatever Democracy Earth is doing, I support it. So there's my money, right? But not everyone's going to be like me and aligning financial incentives is, you know, very powerful as, as we know. Um, so what's the connection there? How does that happen? And forgive me if you've explained this to me, but I'm just, you know, just trying to you know, wrap my, really try to understand it. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, you know, adoption does take time. And so we're not trying to rush anything. As a matter of fact, the opposite. We actually put throttles into the protocol. So literally over the first 40 days, we couldn't have more than 60,000 people sign up, right? And because we know it takes time. We know underlying protocols needed to be developed, lower transaction costs, things like that. And, and different use cases, you know, will need to be developed for the identification. And as more and more people, as we've seen in most, uh, you know, token issuance, you know, once you get a community that believes in it and they start using it, a doge, for example, right? That's just a, a dog in a picture and belief, right? And so it's, you know, when you have utility underneath it, like voting and real applications, it's going to have real use and demand for, for the token. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that supports it is that voting uh, uh, utility under under the token, yeah. As well as a unique sort of notion relative to valuing time, and we think that again, once that gets learned out there, people will okay. I shouldn't let this go for less than I would sell my time for. That takes a while for people to really understand. I mean, it's taking us a lot of back and forth just to sort of get your hands around it, and it's it's tough. I know that you know fiat currencies are any currency is hard to understand, but if you look back over time, like they change all the time, they're added all the time. Every time you add a new like credit card to your digital wallet, it's a whole new currency, if you will. Like airlines mm -hmm. were a new currency, airline miles, right? I mean, they're created just from nothing, sitting your butt from here to there. No productivity, nothing, right? All of a sudden, there's a new currency out there. You used to buy it with dollars, and now you buy it with airline miles, right? And the proof is just, hey, did you go from here to there? Yes. Oh, here you go. New currencies created. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that sort of adoption took a long time. People, when, the, when the, those were first issued, like, what are these? And how are they different? And, you know, more and more, there's going to be all those different layers of currency and use. And so we just think that, you know, uh, you know, we're going to continue to build those protocols and the markets are going to continue to develop and put value on it. And we're going to continue to build more things on top of the uh, identification. But in general, it's just important that we thought that those limiting factors are there. So it's not just unlimited quantity. There's a process there that's going to throttle that, that pace and growth. The pseudo just goes and overloaded with, with bots and, and uh, sibyls. And so, you know, with that, we, we want to uh, manage growth that sort of adopts and, and tracks both to the underlying technologies. I mean, if you think about Democracy Earth, a lot of people are like, what's taking you guys so long? And you really just have to wait for like smart contract auditing, you know, things like that to come along, transaction costs to come down. There's, you know, just a lot of development that you sort of track to and prioritize. So yeah, no, it's a long I'd game for us. It's not, it's not that they, next year we expect everyone to understand it and get it. It's going to, you know, spread out there. So uh, right. we, we have a long time horizon here and we're, relatively confident in our protocol and the, the key and trick always is trying to keep it as simple as possible and there's mm -hmm. a lot of complicated stuff out there so you know one per hour and just prove your humanity 
and keep it a simple voucher process is as simple as we could get. Yeah. And I could pay you for your time. Like, you know, thank you for sitting here for two hours. Here's two UBI or what I. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. And you could take them out of your wallet or you could buy them out on an exchange or you could just, if you will, the protocol is to send me the equivalent and that'll mint one in my wallet. Because I'm basically saying I'm selling an hour of my time and then I can't mint more than a certain amount in in a given day. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm sorry, so if your time's more valuable than mine. Let's you know, you you've, yeah. you've got this extra extra you've got all this extra experience. Um, you know, so you might not yep. want the market rate of that one UBI, right? Oh, but it's all times the same. Oh, I definitely so, won't. I might uh, definitely not. So let's say I'm doing consult, cons, consulting for you, right? Now, we're going to come up to it, the agreement. Now, I, I've played, paid plenty of lawyers five, six, seven hundred dollars an hour, and I got nothing at the end of the day, right? So how much was their time worth? Nothing, right? The, the idea is that you're actually, for anything that takes time to do, and sometimes Things don't take much time at all, but you are contracting with that person through a smart contract and basically at least paying them a market rate for their time. Now, if I think, well, okay, yeah, that pays me for my time, you've contracted for that, but the service I'm providing to you, the delivery I'm providing to you, that's worth a lot more than just my time. There's plenty of jobs that aren't. You'll just do a mindless thing and you're, I'm paying for your time and there's the market rate and I've got your time and it takes no skills, right? There are plenty of others. Where, well, if it takes skills, then something else is going to be delivered over that time than just you sitting there, right? So it, you, you start to have different conversations. Deliverables actually become what are becoming valued. Um, and But underneath that, at least you have the record that that's this person bought your time and paid a fair market rate for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And then yeah. the conversation can be anything on top of that sales related expertise related, any sort of deliverable. Um, or it can just be, you know, I'm paying you two per hour, right? I'm just not paying you less than one. Right. Yeah. So you can choose, you could actually choose to pay someone however much you want and you can buy those UBI tokens however you want um, and then send them through. Um, is the intention for this UBI token to become a, a currency, like a global currency, like the, a primary, like the primary means of exchange, or is it separate? Is it meant to be kind of something more underlying that feeds into what could be a global currency of the future, which who knows what it'll be? It might, it might yet to be created. Um, yeah, I'm curious to hear your answer. Yeah. For, so first of all, the answer is yes. And yes, because whenever you issue a, a, a blockchain token, it's, it's global. And oftentimes, you know, it depends on how you define currency and, and where you are and what regulation. Mm. But usually the token has some value. So is that a currency? The lines are pretty blurred, right? Especially as you can swap in and out of, 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 of these tokens and you have ultimate liquidity. Um, and in some places they like to call it a currency in other places they know it's an asset, but then when it's an asset's liquid, is that not a currency? You know? So, um, 
you know, and, and, but again, it's, it's not meant to like compete with, you know, existing, I would consider it more like a missing layer. And I think there's room for hundreds, if not thousands. Again, you think of airline miles, there's a currency. Is that competing against a dollar? Absolutely. You could only used to buy airline miles with dollars. Now you can actually not buy them with dollars and use airline miles. It's a competing currency with the dollar in that category. And we're going to have hundreds, if not thousands of those. And this happens to be, yes, a missing layer that scales with humanity and represents time. Now, we've seen a lot of time based token you know projects out there you know uh uh and there's a lot of merit to that thinking but i I think that it wasn't until ubi and this protocol that you know it sort of hit the mark on on what's needed out there and that's a a very simple protocol that scales with humanity and and represents it, it you know time itself um and you know will there be you know other layers that represent different uh, currencies yes absolutely you know hundreds of them mm-hmm. thousands of them yeah well it sounds very exciting um i'm listed i've i've attempted to prove my humanity so i'm uh i'm in no rush to get my stream don't worry but um i'm excited to see how this unfolds um what are the uh, we can take a, a bit of a break there i think we've, we've covered at least what i wanted to ask with regards to the ubi but what are the biggest challenges in moving this new raft of technologies forward? Um, I spoke to a guy called Jason Potts the other day. He's a, an innovation economist and a blockchain economist. He's based in uh, Melbourne. And he said that blockchain is going to basically underpin all of the social infrastructure of the future, like the digital social infrastructure, uh, which is just you know, huge, right? And that's the feeling that you, you get when you, if you're on Twitter, if you're just listening to these things, and if you've just got a bit of an imagination, you can see how it applies in so many different ways. Uh, so it's got this amazing um, potential. The, what's, what are the barriers to uh, adoption um, and, or, or barriers for democracy? Yeah, like, what are you finding? What are you finding in the, in the, in the ecosystem? What's being, what's being said? Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, 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 adoptions are always in, in, in <laughs> the most important ones in my world are timing. You have to get your timing right. If you're too early, you get killed. If you're too late, you get run over. And, you know, and, and timing is one of those things that's it's tricky to ride that uh, timing wave properly. You run out of cash or you, you can do so many things as a startup, which we certainly are and in and, and an industry that's that's really early. But you know, it's, it's regulation is, is a big one. Uh, the friction that's caused uh, by governments as, you know, you're operating on a global uh, internet and commerce is, wants to move uh, globally as well. And more and more, the younger generations, you know, think of themselves as global citizens and don't relate to the, the borders and obstacles that are created by, by currency. So, you know, and there's certain pride there in currencies as well that exists, you know, the U.S. dollar or whatever currency, and it, which is, uh, again, a generational thing, I think. And, uh, you know, there's, we, we, we see friction there. So that's sort of some obstacles. General blockchain understanding. I mean, I think you've got a couple of major worlds there. Uh, one is sort of finance related, and they just think of blockchains as making money and buying low and selling high and, you know, driving the price up. And I understand that world in the finance world and that there's, we certainly need market 
you know, making in, in all these different uh, tokens. And that only happens when you have a rich marketplace and supply and demand and, and let it let it operate and not tinker with it too much. Uh, but, you know, it also creates an opportunity because things are so open for a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of uh, trolls out there and a lot of people that uh, are don't understand your protocol or why you issued it. And they start bad mouthed you. So, you know, uh, so, you know, there's a lot of obstacles and misunderstanding out there. That, so it's an education process that takes time. Mm. Yeah, I've noticed that now I've been following. I've blockchain for a while i tried to buy in 2013 it was way too hot and i just gave up right um and i i still feel that when you know i go to a website for a a crypto project and i'm just hit with all of this jargon and i don't know what it does um i've really got to like i've got to do a, a lot of research just to be able to understand the basics um and I think this is true for, if this is true for me, I'm like somewhat technologically clued in. Like, how is my mom going to use this or my grandma or uh, how are they going to like, not only like use it, but kind of understand how this fits into the bigger picture and understand why their data is important and how these things enable it. Um, I I think that that's one of the biggest uh, draw, not, not drawbacks, but it's one of the biggest failures, let's say of the space at the moment, not being able to communicate the, the true value, like the 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 world changing, you know, utopian <laughs> vision in a way of of what this uh, technology or the set of technologies uh, presents us with. Well, yes, and you and, and the industry, you know, if it were just, you know, didn't face the headwinds, and, and I think those headwinds are both regulatory, but also you know, existing power structures and currencies, right? If if you're kind of uh, an institution and blockchain is going to, you know, uh, run your business model over, you're going to spend every amount of your existing currency against it. Uh, and that's, and a lot of those organizations own the media and, and do just that. And, you know, or, or if you've got a currency that is going down relative to a lot of these, uh, you know, blockchain currencies, uh, you know, again, you're going to, you're going to fight against it. And, 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 a, a, again, so much of this is dark money and sits in ledgers that uh, aren't public. And I think there's a lot of fear there from from those folks uh, that uh, that 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 try to stop uh, you know blockchains from advancing. So those headwinds are there, and, so, and recognize. Uh, just to make sure I understand, there's dark money, so pe- money that's been made in dodgy ways is, that's sitting in in ledgers, and they don't want those advancements to take place because. They're like they'll be under scrutiny. Is, is is that what you're saying? Well, if you think about uh, crime around the world, you know what currency is used for crime. I'll say just, U.S. Just dollars. Off the top of now. Yeah, there, there, there you go. And and let me just yeah. say, is that going through the banking system or is that cash? Cash. Oh, right. p- bingo! Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Uh, bingo. So the U.S. dollar is used around the world as as for the criminal systems, and it's mostly dark. It meaning it's not registering on uh, the banking system. It's being you know uh, in duffel bags. It's it's it, mm-hmm. it 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 basically runs the the criminal system of the world. And and the more and more uh, you know it's digitized, and that cash is not of value. Uh, and not used, uh, the harder it is for the, the criminals to get away uh, with their crimes, actually, right? Now, 
Um, but but it's really more of you know the, the crime is one thing, and that's more of a cash flow situation. But the the dark money is more of that money that's sitting there and had been inherited and basically is in the trillions of dollars with in the hands of a few, and it influences so much, right? Uh, and so don't think about it as as criminal. Just think of it as so massive that uh, it's got an outweighed voice, mm-hmm. right? So and it speaks yeah. in very different ways, right? That again, it's dark. You don't see it. You don't see how where it comes from. You and it's so massive that you know there's talk, 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 and then that you know dark money speaks. And so I think that anyone that is in that world sees their power slipping away relative to uh, cryptocurrencies and legitimate yeah. ledgers. I'd call them of power mm, mm, because it's a lot easier to influence, you know, a handful of politicians with, you know, if you've got money or there are plenty of ways to do it. It's far easier to do that than to try to completely alter a protocol that's running on, you know, a million computers around the world. Yeah, yeah. And the the money that flows into these political campaigns and politicians is, you know, from these super PACs and very, very difficult to find its source. And at the end of the day, it has just as much or more voice and power than than citizens, right? Mm. And it's just money, right? And it's just coming from a very few that you can't determine who it is. So when you think about is this democracy? Well, um, it's certainly a form of capitalistic democracy. And most of the numbers I see, you know, would indicate that over time that power has shifted. And today we've sort of caught, crossed that Rubicon where more of the power is in the corporations and the institutions that it is with the people. And that's a dangerous place to be, right? Mm. Very dangerous yeah. place to be. Particularly when their interests are not at all aligned with our own, at least from the, I mean, I think in many countries in the West, at least we are pro climate change. We are pro like, pro climate action, pro taking the necessary steps, but that just does not translate into the, well, the decisions at the higher levels and at what cost? Well, pot- potentially the collapse of the biosphere and our societies with it. Um, which yeah, is, well, the, measure- <laughs> the measurements are wrong, right? If you think of how corporations measured it's stock price, right? And stock mm. prices because they're mandated to report every quarter certain numbers, and those numbers are all just profit-related. And they're not, how much carbon did you use? They're not, are your employees satisfied and paid well? It's not, you know, not all, all the things that might, might or should go into the value of a corporation, right? Mm. And so we're just miss, missing a lot of these measurements. And the good news is, is that blockchains are going to be able to be implemented to put in place these measurements. Right. And yeah. put the proper value on corporations or, you know, let's call it a, a collection of activities people are doing. Right. And in rooting out a lot of these layers and layers of, you know, limited liability in these corporations. I mean, if you go back in history, when corporations were, at least here in the United States, again, first allowed, the states would allow them under one condition that the owners were liable. And the idea of limited liability was the very last thing and exactly what the states were trying to prevent. And over time, it's just been chipped away such that it became the reason to start a corporation is limit your liability. When it started out, well, of course not. We see the need to organize and get together. But what you can't do is like, you know, off 
put the liability, right? And so just that notion alone is, is one that's going to kind of like come home to roost, I think. And more and more liability is going to be accounted for because now you're accounting for it. Now you have mm. the, the, the actual accounting. And one thing that I've learned is you can't have accountability with, without the accounting. As a matter of fact, there's a, I'll, I'll sort of mention a, you know, a couple of books that I would, I would recommend. And uh, one of those is Architecture of a Techno-Democracy. Uh, it was written by uh, Jason Hanania, and essentially he's a lawyer, uh, ex-FBI whistleblower, uh, ran for Senate here in California uh, uh, 2016, and wrote this book saying that, uh, you know, it's not until blockchains came along that we can have real democracy here in the United States. And it wasn't until I read that book that we started thinking of the U.S. as a customer for Democracy Earth that, oh, yeah, democracy is a little broken here. And he pointed out that as a nation, we've kind of gone from the rule of one, which is the king, to a rule of the one percent. And now we can transition to a rule of the hundred percent, not ninety nine percent, but a hundred percent. So we go from king one to one percent to a hundred percent. And we can only get to the 100% if we do four things, and that's CODA, communications, options, decisions, and accountability. And that's democracy. So what that means is communications, we have to, whatever we're conducting democracy on, the people need to own those communications. And the truth of the matter is they don't. Facebook owns those communications. Google owns those communications. Private enterprises own those communications. So we don't have democracy today because the communications on which we conduct democracy aren't owned by the people, right? I would say congratulations, Mark Zuckerberg. You've created utility. Now hand it over to the people, mm. right? Now, the second one in CODA in this book is options. And that's where kind of it has to be an easy process for people to put options out there. Not a complicated process, not a complicated ballot process, but ideas can flourish. The options can, can come very easily. The third thing is decision-making, and that's where voting comes in. Okay, we've had a communication. We've decided what options we want. Now we're going to vote on them. And mm-hmm. the real problem with democracy today in most places is it doesn't have the last thing, the A, the accountability. It's not being measured. We voted on it, and... What, why was it never implemented, right? <laughs> and we don't have that sort of like last element. And, and Jason told, told me that now he's writing a new book, the second book that is going to focus right on the A of CODA accountability. And so it's with that and his connecting sort of things to the Second Amendment and Fifth Amendment, we, Amendment that we sort of look at it, the U.S. as sort of uh, in need of what Democracy Earth was doing. Mm. So do you build the... The underlying infrastructure. So just, just going on that CODA um, description there, um, yeah. the communication and the, the options, um, mm-hmm. is there underlying architecture upon which I could build my own voting app that, that, that's built on Democracy Earth? Is that, so are you building like the, yes. the base layer? Yes, absolutely. And that's the way the open source software works. And that's the way it works. You can go out to GitHub, pull, uh, uh, you know, fork our code and build uh, your own democracy on top of our uh, our platform. Yeah. For sure. And that could be and for um, corporations, anything, like whatever I want. Like it could be my state government. It could be uh, a country. Anything you want. Anything yeah. you want. You have a group of people that 
you want to vote on something, you want to distribute those votes or tokens, and you want to conduct it in different ways, yes. So have people built, like, um, I'd love, if I could just, like, take that code and then some, there's, like, a shell of an app that I could, you know, throw it into and then do it for my, uh, let's say, my local government, for just as, as an example. If I could just pull that in, if there's a few hackers locally who could just do that and then try to bring it, you know, get some adoption, throw it in the app store or something. I don't know what the technical details would be. Like, is that sort of technical infrastructure or that modularity that it has the work been done so that people can grab it and grab and go? Uh, uh, yes and no. And in different ways, uh, there's a group out of Paris that really has built their entire company around it. And what they do is, is they're kind of like the red hat to Linux, right? Like the code is there and depending on what the jurisdiction or the country or the county wants to do, they would hire them to implement our software and kind of uh, do it on their behalf, right? In some yeah. jurisdictions, they're pretty technical and they do it themselves, you know? But in mm -hmm. most times, you're going to be hiring somebody that's implemented it multiple times, can host it in, in, in an appropriate way and whatnot. Yeah, great. I'm, I'm just imagining, like, a, I go to Democracy Earth slash, um, I don't know, modules, and there's, like, the the... The high school club module, there's the, uh, or like, you know, packages, and it'll be just for all these different instances where you can tweak a few variables and make it fit what you need, but it's all built on this underlying um, technology. Uh, I think that'd be really yeah, cool. Yeah, that's a good vision, and hopefully we'll absolutely get there, and we will. And, and it, it, once you fundamentally understand kind of like uh, if you have a token, that's sort of the fundamental uh, model that you're building on. And then anyone can spin up a token and then distribute those tokens on, on, on whatever protocol they determine, right? Like mm. what determines membership, right? And usually that's, you know, when you start a company, that's, you know, that's basically the fundamentals of what they call bylaws, right? Who starts out with shares? What's the voting process? What is quorum? You know, how many votes is it? Simple majority or higher supermajority, and sort of, you know, what are those just basic fundamentals? And, and, you know, it's, it's, it, once you kind of to decide those or determine those, there's your uh, governance, right? There's your tokens and sort of, and, and we sort of created that governance layer, which whereby anybody could do that again with our token, their own spinning up a new one and developing those types of protocols. Um, in, in, with, with, again, with some, judicial process around it if there's any uh, disputes yeah um on the roadmap is there a the equivalent of login with facebook login with google but login with proof of humanity like i'd love to just be able to not go through google and then just click proof of humanity and have some identity verification thing happen there and so i kind of control it uh in a way yeah 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 and that uh, that triangulation is going to occur through your Ethereum address and your proof of mania ID and other things that could be related or associated to it. But it, yeah, it does become a proof of, proof of stake uh, condition, right? That you can prove like you have control of that ID, you get the rights uh, mm -hmm. that are that are that are associated with that. So yes, fundamentally, it does become your ID controlled by your digital wallet. And then people can see, you know, Keybase, have you used Keybase at all? Yeah. You yeah. know, 
similar process. Where on Keybase is like a just for those who aren't aware, it's and please correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't had a look at it in a while. But it's um it's basically like an identity system, but there's also a chat and a file storage system. Uh, so it's like a bunch of different use cases bundled into one. But what holds it together is identity. Yeah, exactly. And again, what holds the identity together is is a simple public address on a blockchain, right? And mm-hmm. so there, yeah, what they did is they layered on top of that, associated with that core basic ID, chat, files, and uh, sort of some other functionality around it, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and the basis of the ID is, is, is again, uh, a, a digital public address. Yeah. So um, I know that UBI is kind of just launched in its early days. Um, so, but aside from, I mean, I think UBI will definitely be one of the answers here, but aside from that, uh, what's currently exciting you and the team? Uh, what's what's been going on in the world that uh, has kind of um, you know really been animating you? Well, twenty twenty, what a year, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, and what was you know, I, I, it was such a transition year, but it was a tremendously important year in in so many different ways. Obviously, in 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 democracy, you know, transitioning out of Trump and into a, a new president, no matter who that was, was, was one of the big uh, excitements of, of the year. But probably for us is really what happened was, is UBI was, was forced on the United States of America. And uh, essentially, if you look at what the United States did, they just, in a couple of rounds now, just gave every citizen in the United States a big check and said, here, you need this because the economy's not functioning properly and everyone ran out of money. And, you know, it's another argument. Like If you look back in history at any sort of financial crisis or situation, it's always running out of money. In the Depression, the banks ran out of money and, and that caused a lot of troubles. And right now, I would argue that people have run out of money and it's caused a lot of problems. You don't have functioning systems. So the great thing that we're excited about is this pandemic forced the, the the issue and now the united states is actually participating in universal basic income and giving money directly to every single citizen yeah now they're doing it wrong they're means testing a little bit and they're they're screwing it up here and there but the point is and, and certainly with andrew yang's you know presidential uh, campaign he made the awareness much higher and we're starting to kind of people are kind of going huh you know like maybe this is a good idea and is more than just what it used to be thought of as a social program or a, or, a, or a substitute for social programs, but it's actually necessary for functioning economies. And it's a dividend we're all owed and due and just isn't distributed properly. And so this, this is kind of what we're excited about, certainly relative to 2020 and, and, and sort of the, di- the crazy dynamics that it created out there. And, you know, before that, we didn't even think that was going to be, uh, we thought that the, the time horizon was actually going to be longer than, than, than it has turned out. So it was at this point in the conversation when my computer crashed, uh, but it does pick up reasonably well. So apologies for that. Anyway, let's get back into it. We were talking about what's exciting you guys at the moment, um, or what, what's exciting you, and that was... Um, Basically, the changes that we've seen in uh, the U.S., the pandemic, the change of presidency, um, the general uh, fact that universal basic income has become more mainstream because everyone's gotten a payment. Everyone in the U.S. had a, had a direct payment from the government, and they know that it's possible. Um, 
So I, if you just want to continue from where we were, uh, or if that summarizes it uh, reasonably well, uh, we can move on. Yeah, yeah. You know, that combined with, you know, a, a, another group that I've, I've been involved with is Independent National Union. And this is something that, that it's, uh, uh, again, trying to improve the democratic process, but doing so uh, with uh, independent candidates and helping independent candidates get on the ballot. So this is another thing that's excited me. We haven't uh, announced too much stuff publicly yet. We've got some big financial backers. And the idea is that, um, uh, you know, there's a great book recently uh, written called The Politics Industry. And when you're in democracy and you work in the technology to support, you know, an industry, um, it's nice to see books like this coming out from business people. And this was written by Catherine Gall and um, uh, Michael Porter. And Michael Porter is a big time business author. And essentially they looked at politics as an industry and said, what's wrong with this industry? And essentially what they came up with was, you know, two main takeaways is that the primaries have to be open. And over the years, they become more and more closed. And they should result in five candidates in open primaries that go on to the general election where it's ranked choice voting. And that two steps alone would improve the democratic process here in the United States and improve things tremendously. Unfortunately, political parties over the years have chipped away at that, closed the primaries more and more, and essentially the primaries become the general election. Because if you're in a blue state or a red state, it's all those candidates vying for that Republican nomination or the Democratic nomination, whoever that is, gets elected. And there's no real election that occurs at the primary. And so you know, that's another thing that excites me, that states are starting to understand ranked choice voting. California is leading the way. Maine is. Vermont, a few other states. Uh, and that they're understanding that blockchains can be used and that uh, you get better democracy if you have more open primaries, you have uh, ranked choice voting. And, uh, you know, this is another thing that, that excites me. And then more and more blockchains are going to be used to underpin and uh, basically enable ranked choice voting in open primaries. Um, you know, we didn't talk about it, but my daughter actually ran for U.S. Congress uh, this last cycle, and she ran against Nancy Pelosi. And so we got to see very, you know, firsthand how the democratic process is stifled uh, uh, basically by shutting out, you know, access to the ballot by in, in a lot of different other means. And so this is one area that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm supporting and uh, pretty excited about. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, that's really good to hear. And I was just thinking about the previous um, presidential election um, uh, it seemed, as an outsider, um, being in Australia and not really having paid too much attention to previous, I mean, I, I paid attention to the to basically the Trump elections. They were the big ones that were in my in my life, um, and just the way that the Democratic Party behaved. I mean, putting the Republicans aside, the, the way the DNC behaved, and it just seemed that there was a conspiracy against Bernie Sanders, um, Andrew Yang, especially. Uh, and um, what's the, the woman from Hawaii? She's great as well. Um, uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard, yeah. yeah. But I just yes. remember seeing on like, CNN, um, they would just never put them on. They would never put, they would give them no airtime. And 
I, I can't remember a lot of the details, but I just remember thinking like, this is fishy. You know, this is fishy. They, they don't tell you. It's, it's not about um, who do you want to elect. It's like out of the people that we select, who do you want to who do you want to elect? And that d didn't seem especially democratic to me. And maybe, you know, there's, there could be, I, I'm not too familiar with the DNC and what, you know, how it all works, but there may be some good reasons why those sorts of things are necessary. However, to an outsider, um, it seemed a bit, a bit fishy, a bit dodgy. Yeah, I mean, certainly the democratic process is subverted. It's, it's squashed a bit. Uh, and, uh, and it's something we, uh, f fight against for sure, uh, and I, you know, when you look at the election of Donald Trump, let's just touch on that for a second. Uh, there are a lot of party dynamics happening, and and almost to the opposite degree. If you if you think about Donald Trump and how he got elected, he did it without any help of the Republican Party. As a matter of fact, when he had the help of the Republican Party going up against Biden, he lost. So if you think about what actually happened is, first of all, I'd argue that it was more of an economic decision than anything, not a political decision. I would also argue that people weren't voting for Trump. They just couldn't vote for Hillary. And when you have, again, just two candidates, this is the type of choice you get. And if you look at the way Trump came through the Republican primary, it was so fragmented, a dozen or 13 or 14 candidates, it only takes 10% of the vote to walk right through the middle. So that just takes a very radical, energized base. And if you, I saw analysis by the New York Times where they said, in reality, if you had had ranked choice voting in that Republican primary, Donald Trump would have gone from first place to last place. When you stack Donald Trump up against each individual candidate, every single time they preferred the other candidate. But when you st stack Donald Trump's narrow, strong base up against the others, he only needed 10 or 11 percent to sort of beat them all. And so you could see how, wow, democracy actually fails unless you have some other uh, you know, elements relative to more choice, free choice, and the elements to rank your choices relative to all the other candidates. And when you just end up with two candidates, you're, you're, you're left with a, a choice you're not, you don't like, and you end up voting for another candidate because you can't vote for the other one. So it's very hard to look at that election and say, well, look at all those people that voted for Trump. When I would say, well, I think more than half of those were, I couldn't vote for the other side, so I had to vote for this side. I'm not voting for him. I'm voting against the other side. And and that's the polarity of... of, of. So a lot of things that uh, we, we've been doing is helping sort of that process be more open, be more ranked choice voting, give more choice, and um, open up the, the, the primary process. Yeah, well, that's that's great. I, I had no idea that was the case. So the, the work that you're doing is uh, very, very important uh, in, in the U.S. and and uh but you know elsewhere with democracy earth um so just in the interest of time um if, if you were to if our listeners wanted to get involved if they wanted to you know catch up with what democracy earth is up to um, and what you're up to uh, where would you direct them online where should people go to to follow updates and to potentially get involved in whichever way um they can 
Yeah, Democracy Earth has an active uh, Twitter uh, 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 channel. Um, you can reach me at uh, on Twitter at, at Herb Stevens. Uh, email is herb at democracy.earth. And uh, the uh, app and protocol we just launched is proofofhumanity.id. And so uh, you can find out all about the UBI token there uh, at the Democracy Earth, uh, uh, democracy.earth website um, or reach out to me directly. Great. And if you were to give our listeners a, a parting message, um, you know, something, if they could take one thing away, um, what do you think, uh, what, what would you like to say? I might have put you on the spot a, a bit, but uh, no pressure. You know, that's all right. I think that, uh, I think, you know, one fundamental principle that I'd like the, the, the listeners to, to take away is that uh, time is equal. And uh, I think we've enabled our currencies and uh, economic systems to run their course and uh, get that uh, too much discrimination built into those currencies. So I think with blockchains, with new currencies and new layers, we're going to see a lot of that discrimination and corruption eliminated. And so all you can support uh, these these uh, uh, protocols. And, you know, I, I would argue that, you know, the other thing is like when you look at blockchains uh, as listeners, you know, understand that there are two real industries. And the real reason Bitcoin was created was a social reason to solve real social problems, problems that were created by private interests, namely banks and people that get in the way of, of people's money and and accumulates in the in the wrong places. So the real the foundations of blockchains and Bitcoin itself were, were social in, in nature. And so I'd like your listeners to others to really think about those use cases that that matter to the world. And, you know, there's a lot of us out there kind of fighting for getting corruption out of democracy and using blockchains in the right way, not just to make a little bit more money or flip a token uh, or think about the short term. So be, you know, like anything, uh, judge the, the, the projects on the people and the protocols and over the long term and not just over the short term. Uh, at the same time, recognizing that, sure, blockchains are wonderful uh, for uh, monetary uh, 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 gains as well as, I think, a huge movement of moving off of private uh, registries like New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ and over into public sphere. So that's kind of what I'd like to leave is just like, as you look at blockchains, you know, understand that difference and, and, and help support the initiatives because a lot of the non-financial ones don't get the support and, and money and focus that, that, that they, they deserve. So if people do want to support Democracy Earth, how can they, you know, how can they do it? Can they send Ethereum to your address, U.S. dollars? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, first of all, yes, we are a nonprofit organization. So we take donations. That's what we live off of. Uh, we have issued a token and, you know, we do have... Uh, uh, you know, a, a treasury there, if you will, but that that takes support from the community. So the more you can support the protocols and uh, and our partners, Claros as well, uh, they're very important to uh, the success here. So uh, they have a token out there, PNK, and and that's used for online judicial purposes. So uh, and I think in general, just uh, you know, 
uh, fight for democracy. Uh, uh, one of the organizations that I respect a lot is the Human Rights Foundation, and they see that it's uh, a technical solution uh, a lot of the times, and that the social ills of the world, uh, when you're thinking about humanity, a lot of them can and will be solved through technology and very specifically with blockchains. And technology, not just in the limited sense of, you know, devices, but also social technologies, the way we orchestrate, where we organize ourselves, our organizations, our our governments, and of course, the technologies that underpin them. And now that we have this new, this, this wonderful opportunity to reimagine these things in such a way to ensure that these uh, systems not only thrive, but do so in a way that uh, benefits everyone. Yeah, benefits everyone and at least takes the corruption out, right? That's the, the minimum thing that we're doing. And, and that's the wonderful thing. It's a trust layer that does just that. And and it, uh, it, it I think then, I think a lot of the ills of humanity in general are stress-based. And stress is caused by not having control or being out of control. And that not being in control means you don't have control of your assets and your future. And I think that when you look at our systems, none of us has have the keys to our stuff, right? And none of us really have control of our assets and our money. And so that causes a lot of stress on society and stress causes health problems and, and worry and, and, and a lot of other things. So I really do see blockchains as, you know, improving a lot of this, taking a lot of that stress off and, and creating a layer of trust now that we can start building, you know, uh, you know, better systems on top of. Yeah. Well, uh, Herb, thank you very much for your time and thank you for your work. Thank you, Sam. Uh, pleasure being here. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. All of the links to things discussed can be found in the show notes, which you can find either on your podcasting app or on my website at samhbarton.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes and anything else I've got going on, subscribe to my newsletter through my website, follow me on Twitter at samhbarton, and subscribe to the YouTube channel where you can view all of the podcast episodes as well as short clips of some of the highlights from them. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to share it with whoever you think might love it and consider giving it a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening and until next time, stay curious.